God, you're a good God, and we're so grateful to be in your presence. There's so many things, Lord, that if we get still for even a moment, we're grateful for. Life is included in that. We're grateful to be alive. We're grateful for any people who love us or whom we love. Thank you for that gift. Uh, we, don't, we couldn't demand it. It seems like it's had to be given to us, and thank you for that. Thank you, God, for whatever provision we do have. Thank you, God, for whatever degree we know you. We're grateful for all of those things, and we're grateful for each other in this moment, and we're grateful for whatever you have in store for us now. And we ask that we wouldn't miss it, that whatever is on your heart for us, we would actually experience in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, a few years back, a friend of mine had some legal troubles. Uh, he had done something genuinely foolish, and he was arrested for it. But then he got a, a, a real education beyond that that wasn't so positive, because while he'd done something truly foolish, it was pretty small scale, and it seemed like the, by far the most likely result of that would be sort of a stern warning uh, to be more careful, and that would be about it. Uh, but when the allegations came down, they weren't small scale, they were actually big scale. So my friend, frightened, got a good lawyer who did all the due diligence and uh, came up with concrete information that the arresting officer had lied tremendously on uh, the arrest report. Conclusive information, provable information. So this lawyer passed that information on to the assistant DA in charge of the case and sort of assumed that would take care of it. But then the DA ignored it, just kind of shoved it into a pile and kept going full speed ahead on the basis of now known falsehoods. My friend was dumbfounded. Surely there must be a mistake here somewhere. But his lawyer, who again had, was a veteran of this sort of stuff, wasn't dumbfounded. He said, no, I've seen this sort of stuff before. It actually is not at all uncommon in the legal system that in some cases things will be pressed forward even though everybody knows they're false. Um, so the lawyer subpoenaed some video evidence from a surveillance camera at the site of my friend's foolishness that he thought would um, pretty much conclusively clarify that the actual allegations could not be true. And uh, so he subpoenaed it. The people who had control of the video information were working with the prosecution. They got the subpoena. They said, oh, we'll definitely get that to you. Then they called him back in about 15 minutes and said, I'm sorry, we've destroyed that tape. And my friend thought, this is getting kind of scary now. And he said, I, I'd always told my kids to, um, to trust the police, that the police would protect them and were on their side. Uh, he said now it was kind of scary to feel like he was in a world where he wasn't sure he could honestly say that. Uh, the day came where both sides appeared before, I think it was called the clerk magistrate, who would decide what charges would be filed, if any. Uh, the prosecution went first, laying out unbelievably damaging and outrageously false charges. My friend's lawyer went next, laying out all his hard evidence that while something foolish had happened, everything that had just been presented was either grossly inflated and many of them false. Um, to my friend's relief, it worked. No charges were filed. But as they left the clerk's office, there was another odd encounter. The perjuring police officer lectured my friend about his foolish choice. And my friend stayed silent, just wanted to get out of there with his freedom. But he thought, wow, this man is lecturing me moralistically when it's just been shown in court that he's a total perjurer. My head is spinning. Well, we're in the fourth week of a series on the Ten Commandments. Uh, the Ten Commandments seem to be so central to God's vision of a happy life, but some of them take a little thought, including the one that will relate to the story that I've just mentioned to you, which we'll look at today. So they don't often seem like, how are these the ten things that will set terms for our life that could give us a happy life? Why these ten? So taking a Sabbath day of rest is said to be a key sign, maybe the key sign of being in a relationship with God. That doesn't seem intuitively obvious why that would be so, but it's, it's very much there. Um, the commandment not to murder someone 
seems, in a strange way, obvious. That's, uh, you know, all cultures would tell you not to murder someone. We're not going to get much resistance to that. All of us would agree, no, I shouldn't murder anyone. And if I do, perchance, murder someone, my bad. You know, I'm not going to claim it was a good choice. Um, so why is that so important that it's made one of the ten commandments when it can seem fairly straightforward? Um, Today's commandment, which is, you shall not give false testimony against your neighbor, seems to sort of fit into that don't murder category. For one thing, I think most of us don't imagine that we'll be in too many situations where we'll have the opportunity to lie in court against our neighbor. How often is that going to come up? And yet, it's one of the ten things that God tells us is central to a happy life. Now, on the one hand, as my friend discovered... Uh, I'm all for not lying in court. By all means, if you are in court and have the opportunity to lie, don't. Tell the truth. That's a good thing. We can see how false testimony in the legal system can be really damaging, even devastating. So, obviously, for a society to function well, it's very important that false testimony not be encouraged, legally. Uh, We see that with uh, this probably most famous story of false witnesses in the Bible, which is Jesus' trial where false witnesses sort of come out of the woodwork and accuse him falsely of things in order to see him crucified. So there's false testimony having its impact. But as with all the commandments, this one gets expanded a bit in the remainder of the Bible, uh, given a bit of a deeper and broader context than just the -the on-the-surface meaning we see here. So let me take a shot at looking at this commandment against false testimony from the positive side of the coin. If a world of false testimony is what we don't want, what do we want? I wonder if this might come close to capturing it. It's actually the second scripture on your program beneath the commandment itself. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what's helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. As if unwholesome talk here is compared to false testimony, things that are damaging, um, but... Only what's helpful for building others up, as if we can see what their needs are and our speech somehow communicates and empowers something other than falsehood, something upbuilding to happen. Or in a specific context of a church, we get the next scripture below. So then let us aim for harmony in the church and try to build each other up. Very similar message. Or a little earlier in the same book, this came from Romans, we get the scripture, take delight in honoring each other, as if it should be like a contest. Who can honor each other better? You know, make it like a game and see who can win. We get a number of names for the devil in the Bible. So among the names we get for the devil is the father of lies, so falsity. Uh, the devil gets called the destroyer and the accuser. Or the Holy Spirit gets names that seem to be just the opposite, names like the encourager, as if God's doing the one and the devil is doing the other. So false witness in this sense, I think is agreeing with the devil turning to lies in order to destroy and accuse. You might say then that the opposite of bearing false witness might be to speak a kind of truth into a situation or a person, which is not just obvious factual truth like you would in a courtroom, but is like speaking what God's truth is into people, seeing in them the good things that God sees in them, but maybe they wouldn't have noticed themselves. So I think of contrasting examples. My first job, for instance, was in a pizza parlor when I was in my teens. I can truly say it was a miserable experience in every respect. And a lot of it boiled down to this sort of thing. Um, The team that worked there all hated the boss, and they had some cause for that because the boss actually was a fairly negative and critical person. Um, 
I don't know if it was because of that, but the whole environment of the pizza parlor was really destructive. The customers were unusually mean and nasty. Uh, even strangers would come in who were not like regulars, and they would be mean and nasty. It seemed like that was sort of the whole world there. The least favorite job of the staff was, of all things, working the cash register, because then you'd have to speak to people. And uh, I remember the very first day I, I worked the cash register, and people warned me of how I was going to hate it, it would be awful, and sure enough, I had a, a situation that first day. I um, was accosted by a woman whom we, who had ordered pizza maybe 15 minutes previously and hadn't gotten her pizza yet. Well, it was a hugely busy night. It might have been a Friday night. The place was packed out. And 15 minutes actually struck me as if she'd gotten her pizza in 15 minutes. It would have been a miracle. So I wasn't surprised she didn't have her pizza. But she was uh, really, really angry and mean in, in her kind of presenting of it and, uh, and abusive to me, to our staff, to our general incompetence. So I, I said, I'm sure it's fine. Look, I, you know, absolutely, the second we can get you the pizza, we will. We're sure sorry it's not here yet. Um, we'll take it right to your table. So sorry. So she goes back to her table, and I think, just to do all due diligence, I should probably just check her order. So I go back to check on the order, and I discover that, in point of fact, we had lost her order. It was not, it was gone. And she'd ordered this unusual pizza, so we couldn't just, like, quick substitute one that was already in the oven and give it to her. We had to start from scratch. And so it would probably be another 20 minutes. And uh, they all looked at me like, someone's got to go break the bad news. Who might that be? Maybe you, Dave, get to go and tell her that. And you can imagine what a pleasant encounter that was. So that's one picture I have in the spirit of this. On the other hand, I think of a, a number of other contrasting things. For one, I think of this great scene, uh, which will be a little video moment here, from this awesome movie about Chinese immigrant mothers and their Chinese-American daughters who grew up in America and kind of the culture clash between them. Uh, in a movie you may have seen a while back that, as I recall, having seen it a while back, was just terrific, called The Joy Luck Club. And in the scene that we're going to see, um, one of these culture clashes is that the mothers all tend to behave different publicly than they do privately. Publicly, they uh, save face in certain ways and honor uh, the people around them in ways that may not be honest. And that can drive the daughters crazy. And in this case, the daughter has a competitor, another daughter of one of these mothers who's her peer, who's this beautiful, successful woman who everyone thinks is awesome, as opposed to the daughter who's our heroine of the film, who just always uh, comes up second best. And in this scene, her mother seems to betray her own daughter in favor of honoring this friend who always gets honor. So here's the scene. I don't know if you're like the first service. I came up after the first service, you hear these sniffles all over the auditorium. I thought, I picked the scene, I've seen it, and I was watching it going, oh, that's so touching, I knew it was coming. Um, but I think one thing that's so touching about it is, I think it's on to something that we're talking about here. This direct speaking of kind of God's truth, the I see you sort of truth to her daughter. I think it is very moving because it's really on God's heart, that exact, exact thing. So at my <clears throat> pizza restaurant, all anyone could see in anyone else was their faults and their low potential and their irritating things they did. And we passed that on to each other all the time. If we needed a common enemy, we had our boss. You know, we could deflect it towards him, and he had plenty of things that were annoying. Um, on the other hand, we were all sort of annoying in that very behavior. And I don't know if this created the environment for all our customers to follow suit, but that certainly was true. By contrast, I think of this family I met when I was in high school. I, um, as many of you would know, I was an atheist when I was in high school. I was sort of a, a, a snarky, mildly caustic kid. And uh, I met a guy whose family was, had a pretty deep faith. 
And when I got to know them, I was sort of intimidated to get to know them because my friend's, uh, at least his dad's background was Norwegian. And so I'd seen family photographs of them and they looked sort of stern and imposing. You know, it's sort of that Norwegian thing where the dad wouldn't smile. And I thought, oh, that's a little frightening. And then I met them and it was the utter opposite. They were so warm and inviting to me. Uh, my friend had three sisters, two older, one younger. And I had some background with other friends with older sisters in particular, and the older sisters always seemed to be mean and would kind of belittle their younger brother and belittle the younger brother's friends as being kind of beneath them. Not at all in this family. The older sisters here, I kept waiting to kind of, I'd flinch waiting for their um, cruelty in one sense towards me, and it never came. They were completely upbuilding. I would say there's about a 50-50 chance when I would go over to my friend's house that somebody would say something to me that they'd seen in me that was positive that they wanted just to mention and to bring up. Um, I remember as I watched this couple age, they seemed to be the sorts of people, which I don't know if I've really ever seen apart from them, maybe I have, who would kind of emotionally, in in the best sense of the word, get younger as each year went on. I have this vivid memory of um, the mother and father, the the mother sort of teasing the father in front of me and saying, what am I going to do with this guy? He's embarrassing me all very benevolently. She's not being mean. She's being nice. He's embarrassing me. We, we go into elevators. What am I going to do with this guy? We go into the elevators now, and this guy is starting to strike up relationships with everybody on every elevator every time we get on. So we're between the third and the sixth floor, and he's starting a friendship. Hey, where are you from? You from around here? Wow, that's really great. Hey, I am so encouraged to hear that. Hey, it's really great meeting you. Two people on elevators. What am I going to do with this guy? <clears throat> and I just thought, you know what? I'm not interested in any creed these people might give me. If they're going to try to tell me spiritual truths, I don't want to know. But I do know, the phrase I so often felt with them is, whatever they're selling, I'm buying. Because I want that sort of world. And I think a lot of what they were selling was this, was the difference between false witness and true witness. So that said, how do we not bear false witness or false testimony? And then in a minute, I'd like to suggest one key way I think we do the opposite. So on the, there's a kind of a no to the false testimony and a, and a yes, I suppose, to the true testimony. On the no front, I think we say a few no's. We say no to gossip, for instance, if we don't want to bear a false testimony. So in Proverbs, we get one definition for this, which says, gossips betray a confidence, but the trustworthy keep a secret. Maybe the clearest way I know to talk about gossip is to suggest it's passing on information about someone to a third party. When you're not 100% sure that the person you're talking about is fine with whatever you're sharing. I mean, if you're sure that they don't care, well, then obviously that's fine. It's not gossip. But if you're not 100% sure, maybe it is. So, for instance, if you were to see someone after today and they were to say, hey, you know Dave, how's Dave doing? And you were to say, seemed to me he had a bit of a head cold, little throat problem going on there. I authorize you, share that. No problem, more aces. But on the other hand, let's say we've been talking, and that same person says, hey, how's Dave doing? And you said, you know, I think his heroin addiction is back. I, it's, it's really sad. It's a sad thing. And, you know, I, I just want to let you know about that. Don't share that. Don't bring that up. That's not okay. We gossip because it seems to me we want to trade information about one person in order to get intimacy or status with another person. Now, you might object that this is not, this may be bad on its own terms, but it's not this. This is not bearing false testimony. So, for instance, let's say we gossip in the sense I've just described. The thing we're gossiping, as it were, about might in fact be true. You know, whatever we say about that third party might be factually true. And so it's not false testimony. It might not be helpful, but it's not false testimony. I think you're wrong. I think it is exactly false testimony. So, 
let's say, if the other party might not want you to share what you're about to share with your friend, maybe it's because the information you're about to share from the other party's point of view might put them into a light they're not happy being put into. It might present them to your other friend as being maybe messed up or pitiable or scandalous. And that is false testimony because that's how the devil wants to label these people. It's not the great stuff that God sees in them. We're presenting them in a light which the only interpretation is the devil's. Now, additionally, I would think we say no to cursing. We say no to cursing. Cursing is always a bad thing in the Bible when applied to another person. So when wicked people, for instance, get described in the Bible, this often comes up, as in Psalm 10, which says, their mouths, meaning wicked people, are full of cursing, lies, and threats. In the Bible, the business of God's people is blessing. And the business of wicked people, of God's enemies, is cursing, lying, and threatening. Cursing here, I think, could consist of several things that come out of a heart that's turned a little bit bitter or frustrated. So cursing might be a negative label, negative labels. So like saying, that man is so stupid, or he's such a creep. Someone we've labeled someone negatively, I think, actually falls under the terms of a curse here, because it defines them in light of the thing that most annoys you about them which I don't think is how God defines that person. I think that's how the devil wants to define that person. Or negative moral judgments. Uh, he only cares about himself. Um, again, I think that, is, that can be, the, it can be a, a curse because it's basically saying they are immoral. They're the sort of person you do not want to be around. Negative predictions. Um, I, I see a, a male approach to this. So that man is going to die alone some dire prediction of a bad future because of things that annoy you about that person in the present. Or dismissive profanity, I suppose. The things we typically call curses, when we say, I am cursing, those can, in fact, be curses in the biblical sense. Uh, Any transitive four-letter cursing word uh, when applied to someone else, I think, would fit the bill here. Because what we're doing is we're dismissing them to the devil with that curse. Now, you might be wondering, again, what's so bad about cursing? Excuse me, I'm going to do a cough here for a minute, so I'll turn off the... (coughs) On the one hand, that did no good whatsoever, but... On the one hand, I'm sure you would agree... All right, we're going to try round two to see if I can get us through this. On the... Oh, man. See, that was a good one. That was a good one. What's so bad about cursing? Uh, Beyond the fact that, obviously, I'm sure you don't want to live in that world. On the one hand, I'm sure you'd agree that a lot of it probably wouldn't make for the most positive environment. If everyone's cursing each other right and left, we'd say, is that a place I want to live? You know, is that exactly the world I want to be in? Fair enough. But I would also say that curses have a certain power. That's why parents, for instance, even in secular parenting books, one bit of advice I've run across several times is when you see a child curse themselves that you should intervene. So, for instance, let's say your child does poorly on a test and comes home and you hear them say, I'm so stupid. These parenting books say, intervene right away. That's really an important thing. Don't let that slide. But what you need to tell them is something like, that is not true. You are not stupid. You're super smart. You're super bright. And next time we're going to work a little harder or maybe to study a little more, I'll help you out with this test. And it's, you did poorly on this test, but it's just a test. You're going to do better on the next one. Hang in there. 
Now, why do these parenting books tell you to do that? They tell you to do that because what they say is those words, I'm so stupid, have lasting impact. Once they get in our spirits, they become, as it were, self-fulfilling prophecies. If a kid starts to believe that about themselves, they will become so stupid. They'll, they'll, they'll lower themselves down to their own self-curse. There's a useful scripture, though, that I think gives us even a bit more insight on this. It's from Proverbs, again. I believe it's on your half sheet. It says, like a fluttering sparrow or a darting swallow, an undeserved curse will not land on its intended victim. So this can be comforting, though I suppose it leaves the possibility that a deserved curse will land, but I think what we're led to believe is there's very few deserved curses in the Bible. The cursing is by definition undeserved and, and not God's perspective. Uh, years back, for instance, a pretty angry, as it turned out, newspaper reporter whom I hadn't met said some super unkind, cursing things about me and about our church in print, not because we'd spoken and not because this person had any particular information about our church. It was just that he felt churches were damaging things in society and that the fact that we were a new church in town in a town that didn't have many particularly sizable churches and were growing quickly was a horrible blight on the community and we needed to be stopped. And so he wrote a very cursing article about us and mentioning me quite a bit, though we hadn't met. And... um, I felt, obviously, bad about this. I thought, wow, we've been publicly cursed. And in my spirit, I had all this kind of cursing in return. I didn't say much of it, but in my heart, it was wishing this man ill and wishing him bad things and labeling him as awful, morally reprehensible things and labeling his newspaper as, at the very least, irresponsible and at the most immoral. You know, that was just all that was in my heart. And I suddenly realized, I'm just in a little curse cycle here, I feel cursed, and I'm cursing right back. And I can't seem to get out of it. It's how I feel. And I suddenly thought of this scripture in Proverbs, that an undeserved curse won't alight on its intended victim. And I thought, well, do I feel like this man's cursing of us is undeserved? I thought, yes, I feel it's undeserved. There's not even, even on his own terms, there's, there's no information by which he's cursing us. It's just his own bad feelings. It's undeserved. I felt as though God said, fabulous, we'll then just claim the fact that it will not curse you. It won't have impact on you. And then I'll fight for you. And so I said, I'll do it. I'll I'll claim the promise an undeserved curse won't land on me or on 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 me as the victim or on a church. And suddenly I felt physically lighter. I was like, ah, I really felt like something was lifting off of me. I thought, oh my goodness, I can breathe the free air. And then I thought, I'm going to start blessing this man. I'm going to pray blessing. I'm going to pray blessing on his newspaper. I'm going to bless. I am not going to curse. And things turned around. I mean, there was no harm that I'm aware of done by his article. Now, again, how is cursing someone giving false testimony about them? Because I think it's because, again, whatever your opinion of this person, that curse is not what God is saying to them. It's false to his heart for them. It's not how he sees them. God does not curse people. God blesses people. That's how God works. So in that spirit, let's look at this for a moment from the positive side of things. How is it then, if we don't want to bear false testimony, that we do bear what you might call true testimony? I think the main way is this. We pass on everything good that we hear or think about others. Anything good we hear about someone else, we tell them. It's the anti-gossip. I'd punt back to that scripture we looked at a moment ago. Take delight in honoring each other. Make it a game to honor each other more. Um, It's the opposite, again, of what I experienced in the pizza parlor, which was just the reverse. Now, I do this better at some times than others, um, but I do try to make a practice 
uh, to be sort of an anti-gossip. That whenever a third party says something about some, a friend of ours, that they say, that, you know, that guy or that woman did something so great, and I really think they're awesome. I, I'll usually say, is it okay if I tell them that you said that? And I'll go and say, and I, I'll do it. I'll walk up and say, you know what? I was just hearing the best things about you, and I'll try to make sure I pass that on. I'll also try to make sure I pass on whenever I have a fleeting thought that's positive about someone. When I think, that person is so hospitable. <clears throat> that person is so generous. Uh, that person is so kind. I really appreciate that little moment of service that they just did. I'll try to make sure I say all of those things. I verbalize it. There's a um, proverb that's helped me out here, along with some other proverbs we've run today, from Proverbs 27 that says, an open rebuke is better than hidden love. That's a very profound statement. Think about that. I think what that's saying is, if you have love for someone, good things that you feel about other people, but hide it, don't don't verbalize those things, it would have been better that you just chewed them out than what you're presently doing. That's sort of a, wow, really? That's quite a statement. I mean, think for a minute about the opportunity that's being presented to you right here in the Ten Commandments. You could live in an environment where increasingly people see the worst in each other and pass that along, where suddenly the world is a gloomy place, where nobody feels safe, where everybody uh, there only sees the bad in each other and in the world. Or you could live in an environment that's just the reverse, that's just like my friend's family, which so strongly felt to me like an alternate universe I wanted to live in, that felt so safe, that felt so encouraging, where I felt better about myself, where I felt seen and loved, sort of in the way that June in the Joy Luck Club felt so seen and loved in that moment by her mom. Uh, after my friend's really disturbing experience with the court system, I ran that over again and again in my mind. I asked myself, how could I interpret the sort of cheerful, unrepentant willingness to lie, to perjure themselves, uh, to bear false witness that was true in both this uh, arresting officer and this assistant district attorney? I thought they had, they, they had the information in front of them um, disavowing the things they were testifying, and yet they would ignore, aggressively bear false witness. What was up with that? It struck me it wasn't even in their best interest, and they knew it wasn't in their best interest, as the truth would sooner or later come out, and they would look foolish, or at worst, perjuring, uh, as they did. Although I will say that when it came out that the things that had been aggressively pursued were false, no one seemed to take that hard. Um, they all just seemed to regard it as business as usual, you know, when their lies came out. There was just a shrug, the charges were dropped, you know, another miscreant back out on the streets, though we did our best to lock him up. Here was my theory about why there was such cheerful lying and, uh, and perjury. It's, my theory was that each of these folks had been around so many criminals that it had colored their view of the world as a whole. So if something happened that they regarded as bad, that would trigger their view that this person was, in fact, really, really bad. That whatever you saw on the surface couldn't compare to the evil that was bubbling underneath this wrongdoer. And so whatever, really, exaggeration or falsehood they ran with was probably basically true, even if it was technically false. This person probably was evil and deserving of punishment far greater than we could ever prove, but we're going to take our best shot nonetheless. Now, I could be totally wrong. What do I know? <clears throat> but that's what it felt like. False witness creates a paranoid and gloomy world that reinforces itself every single day. 
true witness does just the reverse. And that seems to me to be the wisdom of this being one of the ten things that God says that this part of the Bible will be so central to creating a world that you want to live in. Uh, Like each of you, I've had so many days where someone has interpreted me in the worst light possible and told me about that, or I've heard it from a third party that someone just thinks I'm awful. And someone else in the midst of that will casually mention that they noticed this good thing about me and they wanted to pass it on. And it's funny how disproportionately that good thing that gets mentioned can weigh into what had been a gloomy day. How true witness, how speaking what God sees in me to me suddenly makes the day fine, just fine, no problem at all. I imagine you've experienced the same. Jesus wants you to live in a world where you can thrive, and that's only going to happen as you swim in a sea of God's truth, where others are seeing you as God sees you, and you're seeing them as God sees them. You know, Jesus has this statement where he says that it's the truth that sets us free. Now, I think that has deep meaning beyond what I'm going to say here, but I don't think it's less than what I'm going to say here. I wonder if when Jesus says it's the truth that will set us free, that's at least the spirit of what he's talking about here. God's truth in a situation changes everything, is freeing, breaks shackles off. But falsehood does just the reverse. It puts us right in prison. Um, Let's be people of the truth. Wouldn't you rather be a person of the truth than a person of falsehood? I know I would. Stand with me if you would, and let's pray about that. Father, we come before you, and we ask to be people of the truth. God, I pray that you would, even now, maybe bring to mind if there's settings that seem to be kind of false testimony-filled settings, like my pizza parlor, if our office or our, <clears throat> some of our family relationships or some other settings seem to be filled with a sort of destructive falsity to them, Father, I pray you'd bring them to mind now so that we could ask that you would shine your light right in those situations. Lord, we give you that, that, whatever that dynamic is, we give it to you and we say, God, would you bring truth here? Because right now, it's, it's not being run on your rules. And Lord, and so when things aren't run on your rules, they go really bad and they become such paranoid, gloomy places. Father God, would you, right in whatever we thought of, bring your light, your truth in Jesus' name. And Father, would you empower us to be agents of your truth right there? Not, I would hope, as a kind of a nag saying, don't be so negative to people, but that we would come in the opposite spirit, that we would come bearing true witness by your mercy, seeing what you see, speaking it out, and seeing if your light could shine. Uh, Would you build that up in us and forgive us for ways in which we've participated in false Holy Spirit, I pray that you would fall on us now. I pray, Lord, that you would speak your truth into us, that you would speak true witness into our spirits right now as we worship, and that we could speak true witness back to you. Holy Spirit, I pray that for those of us who are far along in our uh, experience of life with you, Lord, that to whatever degree we've become a little jaded ourselves in our walk with you, that you would bust through that right now, that you would fill us with fresh hope, that you would speak directly into our spirits even this morning in ways that we so need to hear and that can break through any crustiness we might be experiencing. And for those of us who feel newer to all of this, Holy Spirit, would you just come right now in such a compelling and powerful way that all we'd want is to say yes. Yes, Holy Spirit. Yes, Jesus. I want to live in a world of truth. I want to live in a world that will build me up. I want to live in a world where I can build others up by the power of the Lord. 
yes to you. Would you come to us and provoke that yes in Jesus' name?